Today's Torah portion is called a kev, which means because, and it says because you do this. What I want to talk to you about is commandments. Most of you may know, certainly those who have been around a while, that there isn't any word in biblical Hebrew for obey. Now, your Bibles all have the word obey all over them. So as you're reading your Bibles, you're seeing obey, 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 obey. In fact, that's not what the word means. What the word is, is a derivation of hear or listen. And the idea there is that you should hear, listen, heed, understand, and then do. And all of that concept gets crunched up into our word obey, which is a poor translation. In fact, I'm told that modern Hebrew does have a word for obey, and they borrowed it from Aramaic, but it's not there originally. So mitzvah are also translated as commandments, and that's actually a pretty good translation. But in light of your understanding of the word obey, commandment then becomes, again, kind of an unfortunate translation. If there's no word for obey, then the word commandment sort of loses its sting, if you will, because if you think in a military or business sense, you command somebody to do it and you expect them to obey. Well, if you're not asking them to obey, but listen, then the thing that you say to them isn't really a commandment. And in fact, in modern Judaism, a mitzvah is typically regarded as a good deed. So do a mitzvah for somebody, you know, open the door for them or carry their groceries out or something like that is called a mitzvah in modern Jewish culture. You're not commanded to hold the door open. You're not commanded to carry somebody's groceries out or so forth. So, for those of you who have been through Musar, one of the things that you should remember, and for those of you who haven't, I will tell you, is that your behavior molds your attitudes. So, as you are trying to change something about yourself or trying to do something better, if you simply start doing it, at some point your heart will follow. Your behavior dictates how your heart eventually believes. And if you haven't been through Musar, I recommend it. It's been recorded and it's on the website. But the basic understanding of the way people are, the way we're built, is we're built with bodies. And so what we do then dictates what we believe. Now, with that in mind, and I'll flesh it out a little bit later, as many of you know, I used to be in the Army. I spent a long time in the Army. And lots of people have a misunderstanding about the military. The common understanding about the military is you got some guy up there that says, do this, do this, do this, and everybody says, yes, sir, yes, sir, and goes and does it. And indeed, there are some armies that work that way, but they aren't the best ones. In fact, our army doesn't work that way, and our army is probably one of the best in the world. And the way the army is designed to work is you have a single commander who's got an idea of what he wants to accomplish. It could be anything. And what he does is he talks to his subordinates and he explains to them what he wants to accomplish. 
he also gives them training so that they have the basic skills that they need to do stuff. You know, they have the skills to dig trenches or shoot rifles or drive tanks or, you know, all that stuff. That, you know, you've got to teach them that. But you teach them the skills, and then what you do is you sit down with them or stand up with them, and you say, all right, this is what I want to accomplish. And then what you hope is that those subordinates will then bring their talents to the thing that you want to accomplish and they will do stuff in a way that you didn't actually think of but will delight you because all of those talents have come to bear on a problem and they are coming up with a good solution, perhaps one that you didn't even think of, but it does what you wanted to accomplish. It's hard to do. It's easier just grab people by the stacking swivel and say, you go here and you go do that. That's easy. But it's not the best way to do it. Now let's think about that idea in terms of God. So God has got ideas about what he wants to accomplish in this world. And what he does is he tells us what those ideas are. And then he gives us resources and what he hopes is that we will bring our talents and understanding and our passion to bear on the things that he wants done and that he will be delighted to see the things that we do that are coming together to accomplish the purposes he wants. Now, if you're a martinet, what you do is you grab people and you say, all right, I want you to do this and I don't want you to do that. But that doesn't leave any play for the creativeness and the enthusiasm and all of the talents that you have built into a person if you use him that way. So if God grabs people and says, you go here, you go there, you do that, what is wasted then is all of the talents, abilities, passions, understanding that he's built into you. Because he's bypassed all that and sets you in a place and says, all right, I just want you to be this peg in this hole and stand there till the ball hits you. That's a waste of talent. That's a waste of why he built us. So if you look at commandments not as orders in the military sense, but if you look at commandments as directions on how God wants you to behave and wants things to be accomplished, and then if you look at obedience to those commandments in terms of bringing your talents to bear on those mitzvot, then you start to have some understanding of what it is that God hopes to accomplish with us. As I say, the easy thing is just grab people and plant them here, here, and there and let the pinball ricochet off of them. That's easy. But it's a waste. Now let's look at Deuteronomy in light of that. Deuteronomy, as all of you know, is Moses' sort of last-minute instructions to his people before he turns them loose and sends them into the land. He's not going with them. And these are people who have grown up in the wilderness. These are not people who have grown up in the world, for the most part. So what he's doing is explaining to them what they're going into and what's going to happen. And there's two themes in Deuteronomy that line up with what I just said. Theme number one is remember. If you were listening to the readings today over and over again, remember, remember this, remember that, remember what happened here, remember what God did, remember what you did, remember this, good and bad. 
remember, remember, remember. And then the second theme in this book is hear or listen, Shema, which is very often translated as obey. But the idea here is listen to what I am saying, hear what I am saying, and remember what has happened to you. Because the spiritual regime they're going into is going to be one where there are going to be very, very few open miracles. They do still happen, so Elijah still calls down fire from the heaven, and so occasionally you do have open miracles. But most of what's going on looks like nature. You don't have manna falling down from heaven. You don't have this rock following you around, dribbling water. It's just like the rest of the world to all appearance. And so what remember is talking to you about is remember this God that was with you for 40 years and understand that he is still going to be with you, but he is not going to be so obvious. So the temptation is going to be to think that you're just like everybody else and your place in the world is just like everybody else's place in the world and your tendency is going to be forget and go off into the ways of the world. Hence over and over and over again remember 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 the time in the wilderness remember how God carried you remember and then listen hear hear what I have to say now there's a fundamental difference between Greek and Hebrew Greek is an observational language which is to say it looks at something and operates through the eyes if you need to go to the moon, Greek is your language. It's a language of science. It's really good at observing, drawing inferences, very bright people. I'm not saying they're stupid or anything like that, but it's a different way of working in the world. And by the way, the United States is a very Greek culture. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's stupid. How can you see what I'm saying? But all of our understanding phrases have to do with eyes, not ears. In Hebrew, it's different. Hebrew is listen instead of see. And by the way, the fundamental difference shows up at the garden. Because what happens when the serpent talks to the woman? What does he appeal to? Her eyes. She sees the fruit. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So the fundamental difference between seeing and hearing goes clear back to the garden. and. You'll notice in Deuteronomy, as Moses is talking, he doesn't say, see what I'm saying? Do you see that? Look, pay attention. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is listen. Listen. And the United States and most of the world is visual, not oral. So, what does that have to do with where we are today? One of the things in today's Torah portion and it's in Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 11, and I'm not going to read it all. But it starts off with, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes, which I command you today. And again, keep in mind, command is not what we're talking about here. So, take care lest you forget, and then you go down to verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So what Moses is saying is your big trap, the big test that you're going to come up against is abundance. 
when you were in the wilderness and you didn't have anything except the presence of God, you weren't in any danger of forgetting him. But as you go into the world, what's going to happen is you're going to listen to what God said, you're going to do his commandments, and you're going to prosper. You're going to be just overcome with abundance. Your families will grow. There won't be anybody barren among you. Your flocks and herds will grow. They will not miscarry. Rain will fall on your land and the crops will produce abundantly. And what's going to happen at that point is you are going to have leisure. You're going to have time not to have to work. Isn't that what abundance gives you? If you get abundance, you've got time for leisure. And when you have time for leisure, what happens is you start looking around and you start comparing your circumstances to everybody else. He has more than I have. He's got more socks than I have. Okay? And what happens is when you're not head down and butt up working, you're looking around. And so abundance becomes a severe test. And I will suggest to you that the problems that we have in the United States today are problems of abundance. We have such great abundance here that instead of having to work and scrimp and save and scramble and focus on being surviving, people have time to look around. Well, look at the car that he's driving. I don't have a car like that. That isn't fair. Wait a minute. He's the one that's getting all the promotions. That isn't fair. Does that sound like a lot of the whining we see today in the United States? It isn't fair. And in fact, most of our politics is dedicated to, it isn't fair, so I'm going to hire you to go and make it fair for me whatever fair for me means in your particular eyes. And by the way, what fair means is now all over the map. It isn't fair that he's got more. It isn't fair that he has a better position. It isn't fair that I can't get married to my German shepherd. It isn't fair, on and on and on. All this whining that we have 24-7, now that we have a 24-7 news cycle on the internet, is basically the sins of abundance. Instead of having to worry about feeding myself, I now have lots of time to worry about things not being fair. And most of the pathologies that we have today are that. For example, take atheism. The idea that there's nobody we have to be grateful to. Everything that we have done is us. And people who believe in a God that listen to that God and want to have society where people listen to that God, that's not fair. We don't have to listen to them. Socialism. It's not fair that some people have more than other people, so we'll hire people to make everybody the same. That's what socialism is. Again, it's a sin of abundance. Feminism. Well, it used to be, it still is really, but it doesn't seem so, that a man and a woman married with a family do a lot better than one on their own 
But with the abundance we have, it is now possible for women to say, I don't need that guy. I don't need a guy because of abundance. We have enough wealth that people can survive with that kind of an attitude. It's a sin of abundance. And so what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy is when you get abundance, that's when you are in true danger. And we're seeing that today. So what's the antidote to that? Well, the antidote to that is gratitude. And this isn't original with me. It's Doug Wilson, my Calvinist guy I read up in Idaho. And his comment is thanksgiving is a weapon in the culture war. Because what we're dealing with is sins of abundance. We are dealing with people who are fundamentally not grateful. They regard abundance as something that's always going to be there, and it's simply a matter of me getting my share or hiring somebody to get my share for me. But the attitude there is the abundance is always going to be there because you look at us and the abundance is beyond imagination. I mean, Kansas, for example, can feed the whole world without even breathing hard. It can. So the abundance that we have is so massive that everybody looks at it and says, I am really grumpy because I don't get my share, or whatever I think my share is. And the antidote to that is gratitude. So what you want to cultivate is you want to cultivate, as Roy Yee says, an attitude of gratitude. And look at everything that you get, regardless of how much it is, with gratitude because God has provided it to you and has provided to you the skills and the abilities to get it. That's your antidote. Because otherwise, the number of people that are whining and screaming because they lack stuff, and by the way, there is no limit to what you lack. What you lack is without limit. What you have is limited. And so the attitude of developing an idea that you are grateful for what you have is a weapon in this circumstance that we find ourselves. Now, come back to what I started with, the idea of hearing. The essence of legalism is the idea that you have to obey certain rules without thought. And what I led off with was the idea that that's really the most limited and impoverished way to regard God. If you go through your life looking at God as a cosmic traffic cop, then you've missed the whole point of your existence. That's not interesting. That's not interesting to God. That It doesn't delight Him. What delights God is for you to internalize the things He tells you because the commandments or the rules or whatever it is that God gives you are designed to make you thrive. They are not designed to turn him into a cosmic killjoy. If you look at the rules that God puts out, do this, don't do that. I mean, they're orders in a sense, but they're designed for your benefit. And if you look at it that way, and you approach every situation with an internal understanding of what the rules are, the ground rules, if you will, it's like playing a game of football. The thing that makes sports and all those kinds of things so interesting is there is a set of rules 
But within that set of rules, the players have a great deal of flexibility to play the game. And the idea that the referee is not there to teach you how to play the game, the referee is just to make sure that everybody plays by the same rules. But the referee doesn't call the plays. The referee doesn't say, okay, now you're going to pass, and you guys are going to run a red dog blitz to the left. That would be just totally uninteresting. The referee is simply there to set the playing field. God is the same way. He has set the playing field for us, and now what he wants to do is see how we play the game. And what he wants to do is delight in your creativity and your productivity as you go out and you play the game on the field that he has designed. And then he delights in what you do. And yeah, you're going to stumble. Yeah, you're going to make mistakes. Yeah, you're going to commit fouls. I mean, just like any game, it's going to happen. But he can handle that. What he can't handle is lack of hearing, lack of listening, lack of a relationship. And that's where remember comes in. Because you have to remember who he is, what he wants, what he said, in order to have a relationship with him. Legalism misses that whole point, which is why, by the way, Paul talks against legalism, because it misses the point. So, go out and do something that will delight God. That's why he made you. Be delightful to him. <laughs>